We're talking all 22 takeaways from week seven of the NFL season. No bigger takeaway than this week than the fact that one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL right now may very well be the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. Let's get it. This is Renner Ranks, the ultimate NFL ranking show. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. That is correct. This is Renner Ranks. I am your host, Mike Renner, the lead draft analyst over at The Messenger. And it's part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I know some of you have said that doesn't really make sense for this podcast. I tend to agree. It is the slogan, though, for the Locked On Podcast Network. But your team is the rankers here. You guys are part of the team that is the Renner Ranks podcast. So maybe it makes a little bit of sense. This episode is brought to you guys by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more right now. New customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets. Guaranteed. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On. Started. All right. You guys know the drill. The five, all 22 takeaways from week seven. We're starting at five. Get right into it. This one's not really an all 22 takeaway because you could see this from the game film, but it's something that I had to discuss. The fact that multiple games were, I don't want to say decided by controversial calls because, you know, uh, coach speak, there's, we had other opportunities throughout the game to win it. We had chances. We, we can't just blame that. But there were calls at the end of two games that were very impactful that Base, I don't want to say didn't end it, but were objectively the wrong calls. The first one was the pass interference in the end zone in the Browns-Colts game as the Browns were driving. That final drive puts them down there right at the two-yard line. They obviously punched it in uh, on that last play for the win. It was an uncatchable ball. It was truly, you know, Calvin Johnson in his prime, tallest man in NFL history, I don't care who it is, is not coming down with that football and getting their feet inbounds. And I'm not like hating on the refs in this situation. It is difficult from that vantage point of being behind a receiver to keep track of both the receiver and the ball at one point in time. There is, you know, that's when you're in the stands and you have the side view and they're both in your peripheral vision, you can see where they're going to, you know, uh, collide. And, but from that view, you're looking at, the defender and the offensive player. And you're kind of trying to, as the ref, you know, by like 10 feet behind them, you're trying to keep track of the ball as well, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to judge a ball that's coming right at you where it's exactly going to be. And so that's why we need a sky judge in these situations. A guy who literally can just see a replay, see something that was objectively wrong, objectively a foul, objectively not a foul. In this case, objectively not a foul should have been flag should have been picked up, should have been taken back. And just say, hey, you know, buzz down. We do that already for some challenges. Buzz down immediately and say, we need to expand that so that we don't have that ability to just say when it's very obvious. I don't want there to be these gray area calls the way we were challenging pass interference a few years back where you have to go under the hood. I want it to be things that are blatantly obvious that everyone at home sees, knows, the announcers are complaining about. Because that ruins the product of the game, right? That the fact that everyone knows it's a bum call and that we have this technology that could easily, easily fix these things that we, we kind of do to a degree already, but it takes someone throwing the challenge flag to make it happen. I, I think that that needs to be expanded. The second one was obviously the Kenny Pickett sneak. The man did not come close to getting it on that 
fourth and one at the end of the game of the Rams game, because the Rams are out of timeouts, they can't challenge. But it's a play that's so impactful and so egregiously wrong and, and so obviously wrong from first viewing. You know, the, the announcers are saying as soon as the play goes off that he didn't get it. But because a sideline judge has to like skirt around a defender, he loses his spot of where he wants to spot the ball and then places it about a yard too far. Like these are things that just, especially in the betting world today, with how much money are on the lines for all of these games, I don't think the NFL can afford Sundays like that too much more. Now, now that's hyperbole because the NFL is always going to be king. There's no, there's no NFL not being able to afford. There's they could do this every single week, and obviously they'd be good. But I just think you would get a stronger product, and you would get the stronger betting aspect. People more confident in that aspect, and more people doing it if they felt like they weren't going to get screwed. Because that's an easy way to turn a lot of people off from the game. Is if you're a Rams fan and saw that Steelers game, if you are a Colts fan and saw that Browns game yesterday, it's just tough. And then we saw some on Sunday Night Football as well. The left guard being offsides for the Eagles, the face mask on fourth down. These are impactful calls that should not be missed so egregiously. And that, again, all it does is serve to turn fans off. And so, yeah, there's a human element to all uh, sort of the judgment of the game, the refing of the game. That's I don't want to take that away necessarily. But when it's clear and obvious and, you know, Everyone at home is talking about it. Everyone on the TV is talking about it. We just need to get those things right, man. We need to get those things right. All right, that's number five. Number four, we're taking it back to Thursday Night Football, where this is a little bit all 22, a little bit team building, a lot the fact that the Saints are in one of the worst situations I've seen any franchise in terms of just like how close they are to a Super Bowl. Because they are finally, finally in the cap hell that everyone's been saying they're in. And then they kind of have been, they've been trending this way for a while, right? Their strategy, if I were to break down just in like kind of layman's terms, their strategy, their strategy has been kicking the can. It has been to give, convert their best players. What they've always done is take the salaries that they had basically dedicated to their best players on their team. The, what used to be Drew Brees, now guys like Ryan Ramchick, Marshawn Lattimore, Cam Jordan, um, you know, we'll get to if they're still their best players in the second year. But what they do is they regularly convert their salaries into signing bonuses. The salary hits the salary cap this year. Signing bonus prorates over the lifetime of an entire contract how much it hits your salary cap. So they're basically pushing, 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 pushing all this money that was salaries year after year after year into bonuses, into bonuses, into bonuses. And now they're finally in a spot where all those guys are so backloaded with all the bonuses they've gotten, the numbers on their deals. And so, and when a bon when you have bonus money on the contract still, you can't just take it off of your cap. That bonus money is going to hit your cap no matter what. You can time it certain ways, but it has to go onto the salary cap because it's already been paid. It's already been given to the guy. The bonus money will hit your cap at some point. And so they're in a spot now, and I'm going to steal this straight from Jason at Over the Cap, this tweet from him. He said, they're in a spot where if the Saints cut every player on their roster in 2024 that had a positive salary cap savings, so that meaning that if you cut them, so if they don't have all this backloaded bonus money, if you cut them, that you get salary cap relief, that, that actually just taking them off your roster gives you relief. 
they would create only $15.375 million in cap room. And they are currently $85 million over the cap. So this isn't really a situation where you can reset anymore, he says. Jason OTC, follow him on Twitter if you don't. He's the best cap guy. Overthecap.com has the best cap information. Uh, if you want to learn more about the cap, there's no better place to go. Basically, the gist of this is all the sort of pushing that they've done down the road has come to a head where they can't get relief. They can get relief on some contracts by converting to salary to bonus again. They can do that again, but they basically cannot hit a roster reset. They can't cut these guys and then get that cap space and then sort of start creating more cap space in the future. No, they're screwed cap-wise 2024, 2025 now, maybe all the way into 2026, depending on how they handle this situation because of how the cap rollover works and because of all these backloaded bonuses they have. So I'm going to read off to you some of the cap hits that they have next year that they literally, again, cannot get any relief from. The only relief they could get from these cap hits is to push it into the next year. So Derek Carr is going to hit for $35 million next year on the cap. And they can't get out of that. To get out of that, they would have to put more into 2025. And that means that you're doing the same thing where Derek Carr then is a quarterback for 2025 to do that. So Derek Carr, 35 million. Ryan Ramchick, 27 million. Who's solid right tackle. He's like one of, probably one of the most valuable players that I'm going to list off here. But 27 million for a right tackle who's like a probably range 7 to 10 right tackle in the NFL right now is a freaking huge cap hit <laughs> to be to have in your books. You have Cam Jordan on the books for $23 million next year. And again, not a terrible player, but this is not the Cam Jordan of old. This is not an impact player. If Cam Jordan were on the open market right now, he would get somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 million a year. That's just a fact of life. And they're stuck paying him $23 million. Alvin Kamara, $18 million. Demario Davis, $18 million. These are insane figures. Now, Demario Davis, they lucked out with that one because he's still damn good at 34 years old, oldest linebacker in the NFL, still playing at a high level. So that one... They lucked out on, but these other ones, Taysom Hill, $16 million. And then Andrews Pete and Jameis Winston, they are already kind of hitting the end of theirs. Those are void years for them getting $13 million and $10 million piece for those two. Those are insane figures, insane. And again, the gist of this being that all of this cap magic worked when those were high end impact players, when this money going to these guys was going to players who were going to be impactful on your roster that we're going to, you know, play at a pro bowl close to it level. And you were cool paying them. You're not cool paying these guys this money anymore. Again, if we're putting all these guys on the open market right now, Carr, Ramchick, Jordan, Kamara, Davis, Hill, what are they getting? Half of those figures at the highest. Some of these guys are getting way less than that. Again, like I said, Cam Jordan's probably getting 5 million. Ryan Ramchick's getting probably in the neighborhood of 10 million. Alvin Kamara is probably getting in the neighborhood of like six million. Tomorrow Davis had his age three to four million. Derek Carr after this year, gosh, maybe taking a backup deal. This is this is a tough spot to be in. All to go three and four. All to maybe sneak in to a weak NFC playoff picture. I just I can't believe this past offseason, this was what they decided to kind of reset or not to re, to not reset and to go all in with this roster with Derek Carr. I just can't believe it because they're obviously reaping what they sowed right now. 
All right, to my third takeaway from week seven of the NFL season. And this is not a specific team one, but this one came from watching the Chiefs Chargers game on Sunday. No, we're not going to talk about this Chargers defense. We probably will at some point because I've never seen a defense allow so many guys. There's not like so many guys, so many catches where you can't deduce who was supposed to be in coverage. You know, usually from the TV copy, like when you're watching on TV, you can kind of be like, okay, yeah, that corner should have had them. This guy got beat. That guy got beat. You're watching the Chargers and there's just no one around some of these wide receivers. You're just like, who was supposed to be there? You can't deduce it. I, I well, again, wasn't supposed to be talking about that defense, but we will at some point because I don't know what brand has got these guys doing, but they are getting trounced by any modicum of an average offense. Again, the Chiefs' offense hasn't been great this year, but they just made them look silly. But my bigger thing, my bigger takeaway, is that I think with the rise of these soft-shell defenses, and it's something we're going to talk about a lot because if you watch the games, the games look different, right? Like uh, This looks different just how – offenses look how defenses look like the game looks like it's changed from even like three years ago go back to 2020 till now and a lot of games just have a different feel to it in how passing offenses operating everything but i think with the way the rise of the fangio tree of defenses and how teams are trying to attack them i think savvy and intelligence and knowledge at wide receiver and ball skills and like the ability like whatever that is that part of playing the wide receiver position is is at an all-time high. Maybe not an all-time high, but a high, it's only getting more valuable. And that comes from watching Travis Kelsey in this game, who was not running what I call create, create routes. I, I, there's two kind of like different like routes that you'll run in an offense. One is, I call them creating routes, where you're trying to create space. You're trying to beat someone. You're trying to open up space for yourself. And then there's search routes, where you're trying to find space. Travis Kelsey is running search routes in that offense. Now he can create too. I like that. I'm not going to just put that, you know, I could say he's just searching for space. That's all he's doing. He has, you know, he still has the ability to separate when he's matched up one-on-one linebacker. But a lot of what that offense is asking him to do right now is just get up into that linebacker level, get a little maybe to behind them or in front of them and search for space. And what did that end up in? especially when the charge defense is giving you as much space as they were 12 catches, 179 yards this past year. And it's just like he runs behind the linebackers and then finds where they're not. He's running this route where he kind of fakes like he's bending behind the linebacker and then just pushes out to an open spot in the zone and Mahomes finds him. It's, it's a very backyard schoolyard sort of route. How you used to in fifth grade on the playground, try to get open. You weren't, trying to cook the man in front of you, you were just saying, where's a spot where no one else is? That's what they're doing. And that's it was not only Travis Kelsey in that game, it's that's what Keenan Allen's doing too. You, watch, you look at their route trees, and they're really not too dissimilar. One's obviously called a tight end, one's a wide receiver, but like they're doing a lot of the same stuff. And it's why Adam Thielen has over 500 yards this year too. Why Puka's doing what Puka's doing this year is a lot of just those savvy routes, knowing where the space is going to be, knowing when to throttle down, knowing where to find it, and just knowing the timing of the offense and how you have to be there when you're supposed to be there or else it's not going to work. This also came from watching the Green Bay Packers offense, sadly, on All-22 and seeing that just like they don't get it. You know, they have guys who don't see that the same way, who aren't 
finding that space who aren't on the same page with their quarterback. And it's just going to lead to stagnated offense in today's NFL. And again, with how defenses are playing, where they're not trying to give up explosive plays at all means, where they're not letting you go one-on-one. You know, you're seeing, you're not seeing nowhere near the man coverage you were a decade ago in the league. You're not seeing them out of cover three on the outside with like press where for all intents and purposes, those outside guys are running man beater, the creation type of routes to try to get open. You're not seeing that. You're not too many. So many teams aren't even letting their corners do that because they don't want to run the risk of them getting torched. And so they're off. And so what you're doing is you're trying to manipulate them to find, to go to the space that's open without letting them know that you're going to the space that's open is how a lot of these guys are running routes. And it's like, that's why these guys are productive. That's why Keenan Allen's kind of having this resurgence in his career is because that's what they're asking him to do. So I think for the draft, it's something that I haven't prioritized as much in my scouting and how I look at these guys that I think I'm going to have to more and more because I think it's more important than kind of what I gave it credit for. All right, on to my number two takeaway from this past week. This one's like a true all 22 takeaway. This one actually one team and it's the Baltimore Ravens after their 38 to six beat down of the Detroit lions, which was that one was over at half. And it could have been 35, nothing at half. If uh, the Ravens don't fumble going into the red zone there right before, but they are sneakily now for my money, the second most complete team in the NFL. That doesn't mean they're the second best team in the NFL, but most complete. Behind the Philadelphia Eagles, obviously, who are just a house, a house. But Baltimore Ravens, by compl- I, and I say not second best because completeness doesn't equal the second best. Like, I, I still think you chase in the NFL, you want to chase eliteness. I said this before on our draft shows, eliteness over completeness. You want the, you want the dominant unit that every single game you can rely on winning their matchups. That, that's what gets you to where you need to go. That's that's a way to win. That's kind of like the 49ers and their receivers and their defensive line. Those are elite units that every single game you go in, you know, you can't match up one-on-one with either of those. So that's what you can chase. But what completeness does is it means that you're really never overmatched in a game and you're really never going to look, you're never going to have a spot where it gets exposed, where it's like, okay, their O-line, you know, we're weak at DT. They have good guards. They just ran it up our our butt the entire game. You know, like that's – the Ravens are in a position now where they don't have that at all. There's not a spot on this defense, and there's not a spot on this offense that you'd really expose. Now, like maybe left guard. We talked about this in the trades episode. John Simpson's a weak link on that offensive line. Defensive line, though, what they've done in terms of backfilling with veterans, getting – Jadavian Clowney, Michael Pierce, Kyle Van Noy. Like, I think more teams are going to start copying that sort of uh, idea where you get vets who are probably not, probably not, aren't as good, aren't at their peak whatsoever. You know, those guys are on the wrong side. Those guys are 30 and older. They are not in the, near the prime of their career, but they still know how to win, right? They still know how to play defensive line play at a fundamentally sound level, even if they're not high-end impact players. And so that's what they've done is basically just say, there's no one on this defensive line that's not going to be solid. And that's how why their run defense is so good uh, and why they're you know top three in sacks right now in the NFL. I'll also say Jason Oway just came back this week, uh, had an injury. 
the past handful of weeks, he looks like he's kind of made a leap too. Like he looks like he could be an impact guy rushing off the edge. The power in his hands right now, I think I've really seen something different from him that I was hoping to see when he came out of Penn State. Like heck of an athlete. The guy's finally kind of figured it out. And then after that, defensively, you have two linebackers that can absolutely fly, that they're used as blitzers so well because they were like low four, five, four, four guys that, you know, Queen and Roquan Smith with how they can just get to the ball. And then Kyle Hamilton, someone asked me after I talked about slot corners last week, if he's how, where he ranks in slot corners. He's really not playing slot corner this year. He's back at like true safety for that defense. Now he plays some in the box and will like drop down there uh, at times in base, but he's really playing more true safety and he is playing at a high level, man. He, he is a huge to that defense for one, his ability to take on tight ends and two, he can shut down vertical routes just because he's so light in his feet for a guy that size. And he just redirects like a guy comes vertical on him and he just bounces. I mean, it's like taking a charge in basketball that he just like puts his chest right into him. And, you know, in football, you're allowed to stand your ground as long as you don't put your arms out. And so he's just bouncing guys, anyone that tries to go vertical on him. So he's playing really high level. His 40 to me was like Dalvin Cook's 40, where it just never matched up. And you're watching him on tape right now. And I'm like, this guy doesn't look like a 4-6 at all. The guy can fly. The guy's covering ground quickly over the middle of the field. So that's their defense. Offensively, wide receivers with Rashad Bateman, Zay Flowers. Now, Odell Beckham looks a little cooked, to be honest. Is That was did not look like money well spent, in my opinion, from watching him on tape this season. But still, Zay Flowers or Rashad Bateman is a good one, too. And obviously, like your tight end group of Isaiah Likely and Mark Andrews is a good tight end group. And then probably the weakest link on this roster might be the running back position. But when you have Lamar Jackson, the running back position ceases to mean quite as much because they have so much space to work with. Gus Edwards had that big, you know, was it 89-yard reception this past week? And he kind of fits what they want to do from a run game perspective. And that he just you give him space and the guy will fall forward. So. And then the final piece of the puzzle, obviously, being Lamar Jackson, dude. He's, he's a freaking – he's playing out of his mind right now. He played exceptionally this past weekend. I think this is the best I've seen him look as a passer his entire career, uh, just the most consistent at least. And when they have Ronnie Stanley back, this offensive line really is a problem. Like He really isn't under too much pressure when that's the case. So I think it's, it's, I think it's time to consider putting them – I think just consider – I'd put them in the mix with the Dolphins, Eagles, Chiefs, Bills, 49ers. I think it's like the top tier in the NFL. I don't think anyone's head and shoulders above the rest in that tier. I think the Baltimore Ravens probably belong in that conversation. If there wasn't for two, like, I would say kind of fluky losses to the Colts, to the Steelers, we'd be talking about this team a lot. We'd be talking about this team in that light already, in my opinion. So I'll start talking about that. They're in the tier of top tier. All right, my last takeaway here. The number one takeaway from week seven of the NFL season. Deshaun Watson's cooked, man. This is it. I, I I don't think. I don't think it's coming back. Everyone's kind of just waiting. Everyone's like, okay, last year we can throw it out. He sat out a year. This year, you know, he's got finally got the pieces. So then he got hurt. Maybe it's the injury. I don't think it's coming back. And I'm gonna I'll, I'll lay out two reasons why. And it's and I and I don't think this injury is like a non-issue. Uh, I think it could be a real issue going forward. But the first one being, Deshaun Watson was the man. Like it's it's hard to think about now because how far removed we are from it being like three years removed from 
this being the case, but he was like as much of a dude as really there's ever been from a, from, from you like an almost like an NBA player type of aura to him where five-star recruit Clemson national championship as a sophomore wins it as a junior. One of the best games anyone's ever played against Alabama goes to the NFL, Houston Texans year, year one is awesome. Tears the ACL. Yeah, whatever, but comes back and like, never like no adversity to this, to his football career. All like never a reason for him to doubt himself whatsoever on a football field is a good looking dude is tall. Like there's like a lot of things about him that just, he probably never had to question any of it. Like there, there probably was never even a doubt in his mind about the confidence that this guy played the game of football with. And, and like, I had a, I have a buddy who was a Deshaun Watson, just fan. He wasn't a fan of the Texans. Like he had Deshaun Watson jerseys. Like he was, like I said, he was almost like an NBA player in the aura that he had where he would just have fans of him who were fans of other teams, but then they were also Deshaun Watson fans. Cause that's how cool of a player he was. That's just like, the gravitas that this dude had anywhere he went, Deshaun Watson was the freaking man for the first, whatever, 25, 26 years of his life. And then not only does he not become not the man objectively anymore, he is looked at as a pariah in society. Anywhere he goes, he is ostracized. You know, he, he is looked at in disgust from a lot of people that he probably interacts with, people on opposing teams, he's definitely hearing it week in and week out. He's hearing it from opposing fans. And, you know, social ostracization is it really is like a really cruel form of punishment. You know, it's like that is we are a very much communal beings by nature, human beings. To not have friends, loved ones, family, to not have support and to be to not have that. It's like losing those things is like a massive factor in homelessness and a lot of problems that we have today without communities the way we used to have. And I'm not saying he doesn't have those, but I'm saying like the way that he's perceived by society is just so flipped on its head 180 that he's not ever going to be mentally the same, right? There's no getting back that confidence because that guy's never walking through that door again. And you look at the numbers. He averaged, he had 0.194 EPA per drop back in Houston over the course of his career. Never had a season below 0.164. That is an elite figure at the quarterback position. In his Browns career, he's at minus 0.128. One of the worst figures in the NFL over that span. And this past weekend was the all-time low. He looked lost. His arm looked dead. He, on five dropbacks, he had an off-balance check down that he threw in the dirt. That was open. He had a screen that got blown up. He bailed from a clean pocket, threw a pick way behind the wide receiver, threw a slant about a foot off the ground to the wide receiver that he had to dive for to catch. And then he threw directly to a wide receiver on the play, or excuse me, threw directly to a cornerback on the play that he got injured on, taken out of the game. It was, you know, it was like Zach Wilson's levels of <laughs> just like not knowing what's going on. It was Nathan Peterman levels of bad that he looked like. And so that's, the uh, psychological aspect. Now, the injury aspect has you know, been talked about a little, but I think this is more worrisome than people letting out. Rotator cuff is the uh, worst injury for any thrower to have. The uh, rotator cuff 
for, I, I discussed this with my father, North Peak surgeon before their show to really get you guys the nitty gritty of why this is such a bad injury to have for a quarterback. Real carry cuff is the four muscles basically that keep the ball socket of your shoulder in place. And to have tears in that basically means that not only is your shoulder, you know, less stable in terms of on that, on the violence that is the throwing motion of trying to push the ball down the football field of football, of a baseball, of whatever, not only is it less stable though, but you are, you have less of the slingshot effect. You have less of that bounce back when it is torn in terms of those ligaments, like being able to kind of get that whiplash to throw a football, to get velocity on a football. And we used to call it in baseball, it used to be called like having a dead arm. Those are rotator cuff injuries. And so to have micro tears in his rotator cuff that he's trying to play through is a legitimately career threatening injury that mentally can also take you out. And that a lot of it is that it just will not, your shoulder will not feel the same. And so you do not have the same like control and you have to almost relearn uh, and subconsciously like you're adjusting your throwing mechanics to deal with this problem. So with those two things in mind, and again, watching the game, the arm what looked dead, like the balls that he threw were not only some bad decisions, but were well underthrown of where he wanted them to go. And I think that might be why, you know, you're seeing doctors clear him because they're saying the risk of re-injury isn't quite there, but he's still not the Deshaun Watson that should be, uh, you know, that was at one point a Pro Bowl All-Pro type of quarterback because of that. So I, I'm, you're a Browns fan now, like we said this on last week's show, $63 million cap hits the next few years. You can't get out of this contract at all. That's what the fully guaranteed contract means. That's why no one wants to give fully guaranteed contracts. This is part and parcel. Why? Um, in the NFL. But man, I don't think it's happening, man. I don't. I, I If you're a Browns fan, I guess I said off the rip, the Saints might be in the worst spot. The Browns, if they don't do something this year, they are very well in the worst spot. And it's like a good team though, still they're a better team than the saints, but if Sean's not walked through that door, the Sean that used to play in Houston, you're not winning in the AFC right now. So sucks, sucks, are, sucks for Browns fans. Feel for them. They didn't ask for this. It got put upon them. And it's probably one of the worst uh, things I could wish upon fan base is what just happens to them. All right. There you have it. The five all 22 takeaways from week seven of the NFL season have not had our guests planned out this week, but I will have something later for you this week that you guys can request guests for me to try to track down to get on the show, request segments to try to get uh, on the show Re segments, request things to rank on this show. But that is it for the Monday episode here on the locked on podcast network. You're listening to Renner ranks. Hope you guys tune in tomorrow. Have a good one.